This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego, and I'm joined, as always, by Managing Editor Andrew Keats. What's up, Andy? Scott, pal. Hey, how you doing? And fellow Managing Editor Andrea Lopez Villafaña is here as well. What's up, Lopez? Hey, Lewis. Happy to be here. Coming up on the show this week, there is poo in the water. Imperial Beach and Coronado are grappling with new water quality tests. What we don't know is if the poo is worse than it was before or same as before, and we know it was worse now before, or if the test just makes it seem worse now than it was before. The word poop is funny, but this is deadly serious for Coronado and IB. We'll explain The current COVID surge triggered another mask mandate for San Diego Unified School District, and some people cannot handle it, including a local newsroom. We'll discuss the response to this rule and what led us to where we are in education right now. And we have a preview of the UT's new documentary about Barrio Logan and the fight there for a less polluted future. That's all coming up. Stay with us. There was a, another viral clip about San Diego schools went around the world. A lot of people talking about San Diego Unified's decision to reimpose its mandate on children to wear face coverings in school. Now, it's summer. Right. So there's less kids. Yeah. It's a lot of optional programs, a lot of catch-up programs, level-up programs. So one of the things that has happened this entire time with this pandemic, is that the school district doesn't want to make decisions. So they say, what we'll do is if X or Y thing is triggered, then that'll trigger some decision after that. That way we don't have to make a decision. 
it's just like part of the thing. But then they eventually make a decision themselves when it's less controversial, right? So, for instance, in this situation, rather than make a decision that they wanted everybody to wear face masks, they made a decision that if X happened, then they would have to put in the face mask requirement again at schools. That happened. The Omicron subvariant BA5 or whatever we're at now. Are we at BA5? I think that's the one. It is now I think so it's often listed as like four slash five. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to ask. Uh, we're talking to our favorite immunologist, or uh, I'm sorry, immunologist uh, Shane Crotty tomorrow for a quick check in. I'm gonna have to ask right. him if they just gave up on the like finding cool names. Yeah, did they give up on the Greek alphabet and or did are these really like sub variants of the of the Omicron? I'm not sure. So. Anyway, it is spreading. It's so transmissible. It's obviously causing another spike. Now, one thing I noticed, this is interesting, we have about the same number of people in the hospital with the coronavirus that we had two years ago during the summer spike then. However, the number of people in ICU units is far lower. It's like 40 now compared to like 140 then, which I think is an indication both of the severity of the virus, but also the number of treatments we have for it and of obviously the vaccines for it. So it's not as serious of a threat as it has been. But because of the transmission with this subvariant and how much it's spreading in San Diego, it triggered the CDC to say we are now a high spread area. And that was the trigger that the latest one, apparently, that San Diego Unified put in place to trigger their own mask mandate. That happened. And a lot of people who don't like masks and who loved to fight about masks. <laughs> do you remember them? Was this like they're, were they waiting for this? Yeah, they're like, to- oh my God, it's back. <laughs> we get to fight about this again. You, yeah, you can actually, I mean, we're about to, I'm jumping ahead here, but we're, we're about to play a clip from a KUSI interview. But you can actually imagine the editorial meeting in which they decided to to like book this interview. They were stoked. They, they were, were like, "Oh yes, like, bread and butter. We're we back." This like, is this is what was the, the mask fight. That moment, that moment for them was like when a new set of uh, like sports facility renderings comes out for us. Yeah, exactly. Which I have to say has probably been a, a better business fascination for them than ours has been for us. Yeah, it's probably, it's probably <laughs> delivered more audience than the renderings yeah. jokes. Yeah. Uh, so, so Sharon Whitehurst-Payne, who is taking her turn as the board president for the Board of Education, San Diego Unified, appeared on KUSI and dealt with this editorial enthusiasm in the newsroom there. For those students and parents who, who don't want to wear a mask indoors in school, are there any other options for them? For the fall, there are some options. They can go to our uh, school that's online. Um, they can opt not to return to the regular school, but to go to the school where they don't have okay, to stop. go to school. So let's stop there for a second. In the fall, they can go to our online school. So my first reaction as a parent is like, so this is set for the fall? Mm-hmm. And... That is clarified a little later that maybe not, or maybe, who knows? I don't know. Well, because they're basing it off these, like, triggers, right? Right. So maybe by the fall, 
we'll be at a different level. But as I've said, they, they use those triggers to make a hard decision. Mm-hmm. But when they want to make an easy decision or a more less controversial, more uh, enthusiastically uh, accepted decision, mm-hmm. they usually do it themselves. So I think they could decide to lift the mask mandate without that. But uh, that's the, the, the triggers, in other words, are not actually uh, like a matter of physics. No, no. In <laughs> fact, in fact, th- this whole time they have been a mess. <laughs> Remember that one where it was like outbreaks? And we're gonna if there's ever like eight outbreaks, and next thing you know, there's like seventy, and they're like, and they're, well, they're I, like, well, why do you guys? Why are you guys so worked up about these outbreaks? Yeah. obviously it's stupid. We're like, you, you guys put it on the dashboard. Yeah. This is not our idea. Yeah. All right. So let's continue on with Sharon Whiters. They don't have to go to school at all other than via Zoom. Yeah. And um, that's the easiest way. What about don't the summer school? What if they okay, were already stop. in the summer? Don't have to go to school at all other than Zoom. Which, <laughs> if any of you lived through Zoom school... It's not like a relief, like you only have to go through Zoom. It is horrific. Mm-hmm. But also, is that the way they're characterizing their online academy that they spent so many millions of dollars and it's years working school. on? But it's just Zoom? Is that where we're at with the online academy? Just Zoom? I think everybody after two years of this is so scrambled up. They, they, they have each, we have all, collectively, all of it. We've lost the thread on where everyone's supposed to stand on the whole online school thing. That the there there were camps before. The camps have been broken down. Now it's just a, a bunch of of confused humans bumping into each other. Well, that, there's that. Let's let's get to that. But first, okay. yeah. But first, I think we were entering a phase, Lopez, where anything online is just Zoom. Like literally any experience yeah. you have online is just described as Zoom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now that's all that online school. Is. But your second point, let's get into that for a second. So you were one of the first to pick up on the fact that we had seen this incredible switch happen where it used to be conservatives who were like, hey, you could do school online with all the, without all the bricks and the pensions and the people and the and the water fountains and all the trouble mm-hmm. you could just have school on yes. TV, on on online and then all the public school aficionados mm-hmm. they were like no way how dare you say that school could be done that way why were they against there it? is no replacement for the community there is no replacement for the uh, personal touch that a experienced <laughs> in-classroom educator can provide to a struggling student that can't be replicated through technological fixes, mm-hmm. um, and you know the, the the role of a school in a community as a place that you go, that you feel safe, that you harbor relationships, that you find mentors, that you make friends, that you just, you know find your interests. Uh, none of that can be replicated through some online portal. This is in, intangible and an important element of what the public school system is. And these reformers who want to take that apart are lying and hand-waving those things away because they're just looking for a way to undermine public employee unions. So that was the that was how it used to be. Mm-hmm. But then uh, COVID comes mm-hmm. and all the, you know, collective action supporting liberals were like, yes, we need to stay home. Right, do our part. Shut down schools. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, online school's fine. It's we're not going to have any learning loss. What are you talking? In fact, learning loss was seen as like an attack on education. The the very concept that you needed to be in schools or else you might suffer learning loss was seen as like, oh, how dare you suggest that? They're doing fine online. There was a big thing was like, why do you keep saying schools are closed? We are going to school every day. Yeah. No, no school has been taken away from anybody. And that's when the conservatives then switched and they're like, how dare you keep schools closed? They need to be open. We need to be in those government run schools every day because that's where education happens. All of all of a sudden, they're like, these places are places for our community. This is places to find mentorship. <laughs> yeah. These are places where you make friends. There can be no replacement of that through an online portal. Remember, Technological then, solutions are blah, blah. Yeah, a guy like Kevin Faulkner running for governor on like, mm-hmm. got to get the schools open, man. Like our kids yeah. need to interact with kids, people. How, and... What are you doing to these poor kids? You're not letting them in these schools. Wow. I'd like to to inter- inter- interrupt here to interject to to mention that I have been remarkably consistent from the beginning that obviously online school is preposterous <laughs> and no elementary school kids are learning anything online <laughs> but go ahead no it, it's it's very true and and the especially the young the younger you get the less you're going to pull from these experiences so okay so then we get to the current stage, which is now, I guess, like she's articulating that we're back, that it's okay to be online and everything's equal there. The Zoom. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's continue with her thoughts. What if they were already in the summer school and now they get this mask mandate and they're not comfortable with wearing a mask? They really should wear the mask. Uh, but if they're not, not comfortable, the uh, what should they do? All right. Stop. What does he expect her to say here? Yeah, like, well, I'm, you know, don't wear it and we'll be okay. Like, if you're going to have a mask mandate, she's not going to be like, there's no answer to this question that makes any sense to to them. And it, it's such a strange way to do it. What are we supposed to do about the person that doesn't want to wear pants? <laughs> I, not going exactly. to work out. He's fishing for yeah. that content. All right, so... He gets it with. They should just let make it known that they don't feel comfortable, and at that point, just not return. Yeah. All right. Stop. I love how he goes. Yeah. (laughs) So this is the part that gets viral, right? When she's like, "Yeah, just don't come." Now, she's talking about summer school. The context of this is summer school, where most of it is optional, and so not going to it is a is really an option. But this goes viral because it's like, oh, she's saying, like, we're done with school. If you're not willing to wear masks, you don't have to go, which is contrary to the rule of law in our state, which is that you have to go to school. And so that's the part. And, and not just the law, but the, the, the certainly the doctrinaire thinking of, of advocates of public school that it's really good to go to school right. and that you should do it because that's how you become educated. Right. That's a, a, a thing that we offer. So let's just line all these things up real quick. It's summer. They haven't said that to go back in the fall, you have to wear a mask. Now, when they do, that would be news. Mm -hmm. And it might be something to reconsider, considering that the virus is not as lethal and that we have all these therapeutics and preventative Mm -hmm. approaches to it. People are vaccinated. However, 
if it is around, it's going to be an interesting thing. And there is an election going on. And there are people running for school board who might, I'm just guessing, use that in their campaign. Guess? Pretty fair guess? I think it's a fair guess. I, I mean, who knows how effective it will be. We've we've not really ever seen any local school board elections swayed by some sort of campaign rhetoric. Yeah. It's not really how it, how it tends to work around here. Well, the... Uh, the- rather old president biden he got the co- the the coronavirus mm-hmm. see how he handles it uh this is just not going to end is it this we're just always going to talk about covid i'm just not going to talk about it anymore all right let's start up stop right there mm-hmm. that's it <laughs> just <Thanks>. kidding <laughs> could set a trigger above which we have to talk about it We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Join culture creator Remel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Okay, Lopez, what's your favorite beach in San Diego? That's a hard question. Because you don't like the beach. I, I do like the beach. I just don't go. Why? Because I have weird fears. And I live in Barrio Logan, mm-hmm. so I could easily jump on the Coronado Bridge, drive to Coronado. Mm-hmm. But I don't like driving on that bridge because I'm terrified I'm going to die. Just just like the bridge will fall or yeah, just careen like off an of earthquake it. or right. someone will hit me and my car will roll over. Or, right. I don't know. <laughs> I'm getting nervous just talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and also there's like certain exits to get to the beach that give me anxiety. So I just can't drive to the beach. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. Andy, what's your favorite beach? Uh, I like Wind and Sea a lot. Yeah, that's nice. All right. So a few weeks ago in Coronado... There were some signs that showed up that said, this water's dangerous. You might want to be aware of it. And they actually closed the beach a few times to the point where people in Coronado who have businesses and such got a little bit worried that they might close it on the 4th of July, which is a big weekend for a place like Coronado, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the story behind it is that the county of San Diego has switched its test for Mm -hmm. water so it goes around test the water make sure it's comfortable for people or it's safe for people to go into Mm -hmm. and if they go into it they won't get ill or they won't get ill to a certain level isn't it kind of interesting they're like it's okay if 20 people get ill out of a thousand but if 30 then we've crossed the line right that's the trigger (laughs) they're triggers (laughs) yes the trigger is 
Yeah, 30 people, 30 out of 1,000 swimmers, if they were to get sick, that would be uh, an unsafe level. And they, you know, uh, calibrate the essentially bacteria level that they're searching for in the water at the level at which they believe 30 people out of 1,000 would get sick. We've talked about a couple other things that are like this, like when the uh, when the FAA was... Um, <laughs> I was uh, just thinking about the airport. Qu- questioning the, the conversion of a photography uh, retail store into a larger restaurant because it was in the flight path and that in the event of a crash, there would now be too many people on that parcel. Yeah, that, that it was okay if too like... Too much death. Yeah, if, like uh, if 40 people die, it's one thing, but you get to 200, <laughs> you're starting to cross the line. Like, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, guys. <laughs> Which, I mean, like, I mean, I guess you like, you know, conceptually that people are making these sorts of calculations. And it's, it's just always a little alarming when you see it written down. <laughs> right. You know? So the, what are we talking about that will get people sick, though? Bacteria. <laughs> yes. Poop. Gross. Yeah. So now. Feces. Yeah. As we all know, as we've discussed on this show and other shows so many times, mm-hmm. there is a cross-border sewage crisis, has been for decades now. Uh, Tijuana, for all kinds of reasons, does not have proper wastewater uh, infrastructure and some parts doesn't even have wastewater infrastructure. And usually when it rains, that pours out into the ocean and causes severe problems for the beaches all along that area of the coast, including Imperial Beach and often up into Coronado. But it used to be, or assumed it used to be, that the main problem was only when it rained in the winter. Mm-hmm. That it would collect all the uncollected sewage, rush it down through the canyons and out through the Tijuana Slough, and there we go, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we actually, uh, our Mackenzie Elmer checked into this. It is exceedingly rare, exceedingly rare for the Coronado beaches to be closed in the summer months. Right. That, that's not just a, that's not a wives tale. That's not something that people say that isn't really true. It is exceedingly rare in the last 25 years for the Coronado beaches to be closed during the summer. Now, two things. Though. One, the actual wastewater treatment facility in Tijuana, Punta Bandera, is flawed and it's just leaching untreated water out into untreated sewage out into the water right that's point a point b is in order to test the water in the past what they did was they just got it like petri dishes and collected samples and saw if it grew to a certain level and they could tell at that point whether it crossed the trigger right is that right yes that's right yes but now they have a new test. Mm-hmm. They count the DNA in this water sample, and they're able to extrapolate from that how much actual bacteria is in there. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, seen as both more precise and also more immediate. To be the bacteria test, there was a bit of a delay. They had to take the sample back, and they had to try to grow this uh, the uh, response in the in the petri dish, and that would sort of tell you at any given day when the test was finished what the water quality was yesterday not the water quality today whereas the dna test tells you immediately right so that happened when they made that switch they suddenly saw that the readings that they had were were above that threshold that they Mm -hmm. were crossing that line and so they closed coronado beaches now 
as we said, as it starts getting closer to July 4th, the Coronado mayor, Richard Bailey, and a few others were like, whoa, mm-hmm. you can't just close our beaches. And he brought up a good point. He's like, either A, we have been swimming for years in disgusting, dangerous water mm-hmm. that you have said is okay for literally 25 years, right? Yeah. Or B, the test is not right mm-hmm. which i think is a great you know framing that is true one of those is true which one is it <laughs> well that's the question right <laughs> so they decided not to close the beaches anymore and yeah, they put I up mean, a sign saying maybe you shouldn't swim in it be aware it's bad which brings up the which question is like, new. They, these they, they, like these blue they signs. used to have when the water was dirty, they closed the beaches. You just and when don't it was go clean. In. The beaches were open. Yeah, and then otherwise the beaches were open. So after this change, where they started getting higher measurements in the summer months, where they didn't typically, there's a bunch of political pressure to explain themselves. They come up with a third option. They alleviate the pressure. They find the back door, which is, well, what if we just put some a new sign up? We come up with a new blue sign that says. It seems like the water might be unsafe, but you're free to swim here. Yeah, it says, warning, beach water may contain sewage and may cause illness. So the the whole may thing is a little bit weird. And I think it brings up the question like, well, is there bad stuff in the water or not? If it's bad enough that it should be closed, why aren't you closing it? Mm -hmm. And what is this like? Are we suddenly switching that you're just going to tell people maybe... There might be some poo in the water that you don't want to be with, but we're just not gonna we're not gonna be definitive anymore. What's going on? It very much. It it seems very much like a group of public health professionals who lost their nerve. That, right. that you know, they lost the faith in their own test. And you know, Coronado Mayor Richard Bailey said something along those lines, and people may disagree with him, but I, it it it's a perfectly reasonable conclusion, I think, when you start creating public health professionals who, you know, we've got all gotten to know very well the last two years, create this, this, you know, door number three option for themselves, which is, uh, we'll keep the beaches open, but warn you about it. Yeah, like it's up to you guys. It's like up to you if you want to get sick or not. Or I don't know, maybe I don't. Does this add to your paranoia about going to the beach? Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't even get in the water because I don't know how to swim. So I just chill in the sand. So hopefully there's no poop in the sand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who knows, right? So, (laughs) so, so now we're at this weird impasse, right? So Coronado's like, you need to change your test back to the other way you were doing it, which helped us keep our town going. And let's just drive that home for a second. If Coronado's beaches start getting closed in the summer, mm-hmm. that town is in trouble. Like, that town is a Tony little, I wouldn't call it suburb. But, uh, oh, uh, so, somebody just became a New York Times reporter all of a sudden. <laughs> referring to... Calling it a Tony. Tony. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Sorry. When do you get to use Tony? It's a perfect use of only, Tony. Only when you are a New York Times reporter traveling to a city that you have never been to to describe the setting of a horrible crime that no one saw coming. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Coronado. the one and only use of Tony. With its, with its wonderful July 4th parade 
all its veterans and expensive hotels and housing. It's a different experience if the beaches are closed there in the summer because of sewage. Yes. IB, Especially. Imperial Beach, mm-hmm. they're like, yes, this test is better. It more clearly describes the problem. And yeah, we've been telling you this is a problem for a long time. Could you deal with it for once? Mm-hmm. Right. So that's the yeah. interesting place that Coronado's in, right? Do they decide to finally just fully engage that discussion and be like, wake up, fix this now? Or do they go with the fake news, fake test, this isn't real, swim, have fun? I get a little bit wary whenever I talk about uh, elected officials or uh, public officials responding to incentives because it seems to suggest that people are being less than honest, which is not what I'm alleging here. But Imperial Beach, all of Imperial Beach's incentives here are to embrace this new test and welcome a new team of people to support the cause that they have been beating the drum for for as Mm -hmm. long as anybody here has ever lived in San Diego. Having the uh, political sport that's going to come with protecting Coronado from, as you say, becoming like a ghost town as far as as, summer tourism goes, if the beaches are going to be regularly closed down. That's great news for them. They they would have just picked up quite a bit of political capital in their ongoing fight to be taken seriously. Um, so it's probably not surprising that they think the test is fine and that we should keep using it. And if beaches are closed, we should try to address that problem as yeah. opposed to changing the test. So what is next? I, I think there's a few things. One, right? We got to keep testing this test like did they did they really is it accurate did they roll it out the right way uh how does it look for other beaches how does it does it have the same like did did other beaches go up the same proportion that uh coronado went up with the same new test uh those kinds of questions and then do they just stick with the keep warning and at what point do they close if if they you know if the the numbers spike i don't understand they said they would close yeah, them I if mean, there was like a rainstorm, right? Or like a oh, like a, a spill. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so they have they have now said that uh, it is not just the test that triggers a closure. It's the test when there is a known event causing a that a uh, you know that would that would create the conditions for uh, there to be elevated fecal levels in the water. Otherwise, they'll use the warning system. But for a closure, there needs to be not just the test, but also a known event, either a rain event or a, a failure at Punta Bandera. Um, but yeah, I mean, to your previous point about the, the county's use of this test, it's true. They are the only, we are the only county in the United States of America that is using this test right now. We went first, we jumped into the law first. And I think it's fair to say that maybe the rollout hasn't been so smooth. Uh, I mean, maybe there would be a way to to introduce this first test in the nation in a way that didn't catch people by, so by surprise about, you know, repeated summer beach closures. Yeah, it's, it is such a hard issue. Either the water has been unsafe and is unsafe in Coronado, and this finally revealed it, or in which case, let's take that very seriously. Yes, that's a very serious thing, and that's the role. And and the role of public health professionals in that instance is to say, "Stop it with your caterwauling. We're closing the beaches. They're unsafe." Yeah. You know, or 
the test is is too sensitive or flawed and and we need to readjust that but that needs to be dealt with and we will continue following and we only know about this in such explicit detail because of the reporting that Mackenzie Elmer did so check that out voicesandiego.org you can get her environment report at the newsletter section and uh, always follow her work at vosd.org slash environment. That's vosd.org slash environment. One last thing before we go. I recently had the pleasure of talking to Anna Ramirez. She's the video journalist who made the San Diego Union Tribune's new documentary, Que Viva el Barrio. I called her up on Zoom to talk about the story behind the doc what she learned while she was doing this story, and who are the people trying to change the historic neighborhood. Here's some of that conversation. Let's dig into a little bit of, of background for, for everyone. Uh, this documentary digs into the community's role and struggle to reclaim their neighborhood. Um, but yeah, first walk us through the history of Barrio Logan. Uh, why do we see the shipyards next to homes? And what does that mean for the people who live there? You know, Barrio Logan was zoned for industry back in the 30s, um, which allowed mixed use of industry and homes. And also, you know, back then people would tend to live where they worked. Mm-hmm. And um, in Barrio Logan's case, or uh, Logan Heights. Mm-hmm. As it used to be then, known, yeah, before the freeway came in yeah. and split it in half. Right, right. Um, and a lot of people just still call it Logan. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so people would work where they lived and, you know, the cannery was there and a lot of families worked at the cannery until it closed. And yeah, so I think, I think it's always been a struggle for Barrio Logan as far as trying to have a less polluted community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's more asthma there than most places in California. If you talk to residents down there, they either have asthma or they know someone who does. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of just the norm. Yeah, I think one thing is interesting, and and if you know any of our listeners haven't been to Barrio Lo- Logan, definitely check it out. Um, uh, Barrio Logan, I mean, is is such a beautiful community, but certainly, I mean, you can just drive down certain streets, and 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 it's kind of weird to see it. And I think you mentioned it yesterday when you were talking about the documentary that you were like, "How is it that you know you see a little house, but then you see like this giant recycling center uh, next to it, or you see like this industrial warehouse?" And that's just. Um, you know, what the community looks like because of its zoning. And when you think of the implication of people, you know, living next to a a metal recycling plant or um, some sort of like industry, the the kind of issues that that brings for people there. But also one, one point that one of the panelists made, who is also in your documentary, you know, she brought up like, it's not just that people lived there, right? It was a heavily Hispanic, uh, Latino community. Um, it's not just that people live there because they work there, but it was also because of redlining, right? They couldn't really uh, live anywhere else. Um, so, you, so you end up with these situations. Right, exactly. Because um, Augie and I talked a lot about that, you know, just like what it, what it was like back then. Um, if you you know, drove out of Barrio Logan a lot of times, or I'm sorry, if you drove out of Logan Heights, a lot of times you were stopped, you know, and asked, like, why are you in this neighborhood? Mm-hmm. 
And so, yeah, they built their own community with the theater, the grocery stores, everything. Mm -hmm. So why has this been such a long battle uh, for the community? I think uh, the documentary starts with a really crucial vote um, of the city council approving the community's new plan. Um, but yeah, walk us through some of some of that history. Why has that plan been such a battle for the community? Yeah, so Barrio Logan has not had a new community plan in over 40 years. Mm-hmm. Back in 2013, the plan was actually passed but by city council, but then it was overturned uh, via referendum. Mm-hmm. And I believe that was nine months after it was passed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they've been they've been fighting, you know, for a new community plan update and every time they get close, something happens to where it doesn't fully go through. But in December it finally passed. Um and right now, you know, it it's sitting at the California Coastal Commission waiting for approval. Wow, that's I didn't know that until they said that. I I I you know, I've been following this closely, but until the panelists said that during the discussion uh portion of your event, Um, I didn't realize that they were still waiting for that one last thing. But um, yeah, definitely community plans are obviously kind of like the the framework of what your community will look like, what's allowed in certain zoning areas, you know, where can you have housing, where can you have uh, commercial spaces. And Barrio Logan was kind of like a free for all. And I think back in 2013, the community wanted this space called you know, the the transition area where you would go from like fully industrial to a transition area that would separate industrial to just fully residential. And I think back in 2013, um, a lot of industry, uh, the shipyards, um, you know, a whole coalition of people and lobbyists who didn't want that, right? They, they were... Um, they were promoting it to the rest of San Diego residents as like, we're going to lose a lot of jobs. Like this is going to cost people their jobs. And it's kind of insane to think that an entire city of people who live nowhere near Barrio Logan were able to decide that, you know, sorry, your plan's not going to go through. And so I think that was extremely heartbreaking. And you capture that well in the documentary of like how this moment, not that their plan is passed, um, is really, really big for the community and what it means as, you know, things get grandfathered out and there's more housing. Um, so I think that your documentary definitely follows that struggle through throughout for what the community has dealt with. Um, who were some interesting characters in the film and what did you learn from them? I think, I think one of the most interesting characters is Miguel Espinoza, who mm-hmm. is the second character introduced into the film. And it's, I actually didn't even meet him until the last month of filming. Um, Miguel, he runs a Barrio Senior Villas, and he's always been like a huge advocate for the community and the tenants there. Um, and I actually, I am a part of um, a Barrio Logan Facebook page, and I saw he was commenting about this horrible smell in Barrio Logan. I was like, oh, you know, what's this about? So we started messaging, and I I met up with him, and he's just so busy all the time. But, you know, he had flyers, and he was going, you know, door-to-door at the apartment complex, like letting people know what they could do to try to, you know, change their neighborhood Mm -hmm. and um 
the smell they're they're talking about comes from New Leaf Biofuel, which is just across from them. And um, so he was letting residents know that they can file complaints to the Air Pollution Control District to try to change that smell. Um, the smell is not toxic, according to the Air Pollution Control District, but mm-hmm. um, it does, you know, cause the residents a lot of issues. Like we met uh, Maria Corral, who also lives in the apartment complex. And she says, you know, a lot of times she's depressed because she has to like close her windows and just stay inside the whole time because of the smell. Yeah, I think I've I, I've met Miguel before. Um, I've interviewed him um, a couple times. And yeah, he tells me a lot of obviously the, the property he oversees are senior villas. So you, you have seniors in that property and they don't have AC. So like when summer comes, you don't want to let this like nasty smell come into your apartment. So you have to close your window and then you end up with like a very hot apartment. So you have these seniors like dealing with this constant nasty smell, um, let alone, I don't know if he talked about it in your documentary, but also the trucks, right? That park out in front of his street are just kind of like really loud all the time. And the residents like really struggle with uh, those living, it's like quality of life. Right. And there's still, I mean, I talked to Miguel a few days ago and last night because he was there, but um, they're still dealing with the same issue. You know, they're still mm-hmm. complaining about the smell. And you're right. They they still have trucks idling, you know, sometimes at one o'clock in the morning and it, it wakes you up and all that jazz. So what was it like for you, uh, you know, to learn about this community? Why was it important for you to tell this this story? I mean, like when I first moved here, anytime I moved to a new city, I kind of just want to go and explore. I think that's just natural as a photographer. You know, you want to go and drive around and mm-hmm. see all the, the sites and get to know the city. And that I mean, that's how you do it is you just go and start talking to people. So that's what I did. Um, so I, I started to explore Barrio Logan with the simple goal of connecting with residents and learning more about the community. And, you know, immediately I was struck by what I saw. You know, I, I go to uh, Cesar Chavez Park and I see people fishing off the pier right next to the shipbuilding industry. And then, you know, you go down the street and there's Perkins Elementary and you see all these big rigs going up and down the street. And I just, out of curiosity, I wanted to start understanding how this was possible mm-hmm. and then so I started talking to residents and then um and reading about it and then I met uh Julie Corrales mm-hmm. with the Environmental Health Coalition and I started talking to her and she just started telling me about the history of the neighborhood and the people there and I, I just felt like it was important for our readers and the rest of the city to to hear their story too and their struggle. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times, you know, when we talk about issues like pollution, we we tend to go and talk to politicians or scientists or, you know, things of that nature versus the people it directly impacts. So I wanted to, you know, give a voice to the community a little bit mm-hmm. and also just learn about what what it was like to fight this struggle. Um, and I think, you know, one one question I did ask everyone who lived there is, why stay? 
Right. You know, if you if you know the community is polluted and it's not necessarily good for your health or your kids' health, you know, why is it important for you to stay? And I think everyone, you know, roughly gave me the same answer. You know, it's it's their home, it's their community, and I, I just I loved how how Julie put it too in the video. She was said, you know, it's the first time she felt at home anywhere. You know, she saw mm-hmm. her. Her face is on, or her face on the walls, you know, and her language, and there's just something about that that you know people people want to stay and fight. Well, uh, thanks Anna for taking the time to speak with us, and you can check out Anna's work at uh, San Diego Union Thanks Anna. Thank you for having me. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast. The most popular public affairs podcast recorded in this tower in downtown San Diego. Get the newsletter for this podcast at vosd.org slash pod. Congratulations to Vicente Calderon, the SBJ, Society of Professional Journalists, Journalist of the Year. He's our collaborator in Tijuana. Just wanted to give him a shout out there. You'll get updates when we drop bonus episodes and extra details in the show notes if you get that newsletter at vosd.org slash pod. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Andrea Lopez Villafania is our Managing Editor. Andrew Keats is also Managing Editor. Nate John is our producer. Very patient. Just good producer, by the way. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>